Welcome to season four of And the Writer Is. I am your host, Ross Golan. I've written with hundreds of artists and writers over the years, and my favorite part of each session is the first hour when we catch up about life, the industry, politics, composition, whatever. So this is a journey of learning why people write songs, how people write songs, and most importantly, who the people are who write the songs. I'm producing this with the great Joe London, Big Deal Music Publishing, and Mega House Music Management. If you want to listen to the songs we discuss in this podcast, follow us on our socials, find out about special events, or buy some of our merchandise, go to our website, www.andthewriteris.com. Oh, and if you enjoy And The Writer Is, please rate and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever your preferred podcast listening site is. Hey, I don't know what kind of speakers you listen to in your house, but recently my friends at Sonos sent me a speaker. I took it out of the box, I downloaded the app, and sure enough, I had the clearest speaker I've ever had in my living room. You know, the vocal clarity was there, the bass was thumping, it was exactly what I want my music to sound like. It sounds like the music that I'm recording in the studio. So get yourself a Sonos speaker at at www.sonos.com. You can listen to your Apple, Spotify, whatever your streaming service is, or you can listen to the music you record in the studio, and I promise you, you won't be sorry with the quality that you get from Sonos. Thanks again for my friends at Sonos for sending me a speaker. I appreciate it. Go to www.sonos.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to And The Writer Is. I am your host, Ross Golan. Today's legend, producer, actor, instrumentalist, philanthropist has not just top charts since the 1990s, but has etched his name in the pantheon of greatest musicians of the last 30 years. Immigrating to Brooklyn, New York at the age of 10, this reggae and jazz aficionado took his rooted influences and founded arguably the most influential hip-hop group of the most influential era of the most influential genre. Damn! Then, after that band, this Fuji went solo, wrote hits for himself before co-writing songs like Maria Maria for Santana and Hips Don't Lie for Shakira. He's worked across genres with everyone from Young Thug, Whitney Houston, Lil Wayne, Avicii, Major Lazer, Quincy Jones, Willie Nelson, Timbaland, Mick Jagger, Queen, and more. He's a multi-platinum, multi-Grammy award winner and has sold more than 100 million albums worldwide all the way from from Haiti, this politician has found genuine meaning in this crazy industry. And the writer is, one time, one time, Wyclef Jean! <laughs> Yo, what up, man? Yo, I'm, I'm going to sample that, that whole thing. 
<laughs> I mean, it literally should start at least one of the albums that you have coming out, which what? I know That's there's how so I'm much. Start to... my whole show from now on, bro. Dude, <laughs> I'm so in. Yeah. So, uh, so you were born. Yes, I was born one day. Yes, I, I actually was born in Haiti. Yeah. Yeah, I was born in Haiti, um, in a small village, and uh, like the alchemists, you know what I mean? It's just um, uh, I always tell people. They was like, yo, what part of Haiti are you from, right? Because um, like Jamaica, people don't understand, like Haiti's really big and the capital of Haiti is Port-au-Prince. Like in Jamaica, we say Kingston. Jamaican, I said, well, I was born in Haiti, but so far inside of Haiti that it would be hard to get out of Haiti. Like I was born in a tiny, tiny village. It's called La Serre, and it's it's um, a cold word. They use a dirt village um, in uh, the the biggest thing in my village was a cemetery, literally. Crazy. And yeah, you're man. the son of a preacher, man. I'm the son of a preacher, man. Yeah. I man, mean, for real, right? Yeah, my daddy, you know, at the time in Haiti, uh, they were giving... So through the immigration laws, because it was a little more softer than it is today, um, my daddy got a, a visa to go preach in the United States. He was a Nazarene minister. So um, he left me at the age of one. He came and actually my name, Wycliffe John, is actually, uh, I was named after an Englishman. The, the original translation of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That's John Wycliffe. So my dad was a theologist nut. You know what I'm saying to you? Like he was all about that. And um. And he got to America, man, and brought us over like 10 years later, me and my brother. Was he the kind of preacher who de- did music around the house? And I mean, I'm envisioning him just being you, but older and singing and kind of, you know. Yeah. I, well, I don't my, know, like, where did you learn how to do music? Where, in the middle of nowhere, Haiti, it's not where, you know, that's like you're saying, it's like the alchemist. Like, how did, how did you learn music in that environment? Who's well, teaching you? Well, the music comes from the village, you know? And it's like the best form of music because it's all acoustic. Everything that you hear, you're learning it from nature. You know what I mean? So, no live no vale con sase, coda no vale, no vale, no vale con sase, no vale, no vale, no vale. So you just come up and you're hearing all of these chants. And, you know, that vibe, it just, you you just, it feels like it's part of you, you know. And I remember when I brought Angelina Jolie to Haiti, and the first thing she said, she was like, yo, Clef, this feels like like Africa, right? Because what happens is um, Haiti um, was the first black republic, right, to get its independence, but it never lost like the the African roots. It's almost like sometimes you in Haiti, you can also feel like you're in parts of Brazil, like Bahia. Like it's just like so deep rooted. And I would say like the music is within you. So um, your grandma gives you um, like two cents every Sunday for you when you're walking to church, right? So this village had a church. So literally you walk three steps and you're at the church, you know what I'm saying to you? And, and you get in the church and they're singing, man. And the singing just, it, it, it made me feel a certain way. So by the time, um, I always said like at a young age, the orchestra lived in my head, right? So imagination, when you grow up with nothing, you have nothing. 
I always tell people, me and my brother, we were so poor, we used to eat red dirt from the floor. And um, he's a lawyer today, so he, he, he. If he was here, he'd be like, "Yeah, it, it, it was red dirt, but it was mineral dirt." You know what I mean? Like he always <laughs> justifies everything a certain way. So for me, that was the gist of it. The orchestra just lived in my head from a young age, man. When you immigrated, you probably flew into JFK, something like that, right? Because you went straight to New York, right? Yeah, the first time I ever seen an airplane in my life. Yeah. Yeah, like in the village, uh, the, the, the planes were so high, we, we didn't call them airplanes. We thought they were birds. And we can hear the sound coming. And, I mean, when we would hear it, um, we, we used to use slingshots. So, like, that's one of the things, like, I'm, like, really from that, that village, man. So we would make slingshots from, from branches, you feel me? And so at times, uh, dude, we'd be, like, so hungry, but we live through imagination. So, yo, the, the, the planes, right, is so high. Cause, cause, could you imagine, like, I never knew what an airplane was. So when it was coming, um, I would, I, we would hear it, right? And then I would be, like, I'm always, like, the leader of my village with all the kids, the bad kid. And then I said, Translation, the big bird is coming. Everybody assume position. So we figured if we can use the slingshot and shoot the bird from the ground, um, from the air, you know, today it'd be called terrorism. But I'm saying like <laughs> back then, right? You know what I'm saying? You, but then it's survival. And yeah, it's, back, it's then, back <laughs> then, it, it, the idea is... Could you imagine? So imagination was like, if we can shoot this bird from the air and it came, we would actually have enough food to cook for the entire village. So can you imagine when I actually got on a real airplane, um, how I felt? Yo, I'm going to tell you some real shit. You ready? Ready. Right, check this out, right? I got to take my hat off. So, yeah, I'm still swaggy. So peep it. So in the village... I ain't never seen no white person before in my village. Like, so literally in Haiti, we call it um, blanc, right? Just like the Indians, like the white man, like blanc. That's how you call it because you don't know. So one day, a suburb, uh, Jeep pulls up in the village and the Jeep opens up, right? When the Jeep opened up, um, so this is my first time seeing like a white person ever in my life. And he walks out of the, the, the car. So and then he pops the trunk and he gets all of these rice. It's like bags of rice and he's bringing it to the village. And then I look at my grandma and I'm like in Creole, I'm like, yo, grandma, who is this? Right. And she looked at me. She said, is Jesus Christ. <laughs> right. So in Creole, she said, say, Jesus Christ. Right. So then I was like, oh, man. So then I met Jesus. So Jesus came and he bought he bought us some rice and everything in a Jeep. Right. So so then <laughs> so then Jesus leaves. Right. So now I never see Jesus again. But now this is what's interesting. Next time. Now, to your point, I, airplane first time. Right. This whole thing is, looks like a UFO. Me and my brother, we go in, we sit down, we don't speak. No English, right? My dad comes and gets us, and we're sitting. And now I see mad people, mad white people, right? This is my first time seeing white people. I don't even know. And 
my brother looks at me and he goes, so, so, so the woman comes and she goes, you know, would y'all like something to drink? And we can't speak English. So I look at my dad and he says in Creole, they're asking y'all, would y'all like something to drink? So then my brother looks at me and he goes, yo, man, who are all these people? And I said, stupid these are Jesus Christ's cousins, man. You feel what I'm saying? Are you an idiot? Like, you know what I'm saying? To you? Like, these are Jesus' cousins, man. They came to get us. So um, it's, it, it's, 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 it's mad funny, but at the same time, it, it just shows you um, the reality of, like, where we came from and where we lived. And so the idea of, like, what you said, landing into JFK and seeing the Twin Tower. Yeah. Like these kind of images and seeing like the lights in the city, um, for us, it was just like mind boggling, man. You were saying earlier while we were in the green-ish room, um, you were telling the story about how you would, we asked if you had a vinyl collection and you were like, yeah, I had a vinyl collection because all the drug dealers needed beats. <laughs> yeah. So tell, explain how your career starts as... A producer. So um, I came from Haiti when I was 10. And I kid you not, by the time I was 15 years old, I was in the studio with Curtis Blow. Well, how, wait, who, who teaches you at 13 that this is a good idea? And, you know, how do, how do you get from 10 to, to being in a studio like that? That's so, insane. Yeah, at 15... I'm in the studio, right? So the way it happened was we get to the projects in Brooklyn. So when we get to Brooklyn, man, uh, it's called Marlboro Projects in Coney Island. And at the time, the the uh, the mob was running the projects. You feel me? Like Coney Island. So like, you know what I'm saying? Like you're a young buck and, um, and the mob is heavy. You feel me? So you at a young age and... You just trying to figure things out. You barely could speak English, right? So I think like a lot of the wise guys in the neighborhood, they took like a natural likeness towards me because I had that whole immigrant flair. You know what I'm saying to you? Because you understand like if you get caught and you can't speak English, you can't say nothing. You feel what I'm saying to you? So I remember down the block, boom, boom. I'm hearing like this crazy music. And I'm like, is this coming out of a car or something? And... Then I remember my father pulling my ear and he's like, and I'm like, what the hell did I do? And he's like, do not ever listen to this stuff. This stuff is drug dealer music. I never want you to listen to this stuff. Then I was like, you know what, we teens, right? So what your parents tell you not to do, you're like, oh man, let me go explore. So, you know, I go to the neighborhood. So this was my introduction to the the neighborhood and seeing what everyone was listening to so um so they a cousin of mine got killed in in brooklyn um and then you know it was there was coming for me a bunch of craziness so my daddy moved us to new jersey and the reason my father moved us to new jersey because he assumed this would be a step up from the uh from the ghetto you feel me and he couldn't speak english too well so one day he was just driving a car and this is what made him decide that he was going to move us to jersey because my daddy's a farmer and he's driving towards somewhere called 280 and then it says garden state 
So he assumed like, oh, the Garden State. I'm just going to move to farmland, right? So he moves us to the Garden State, dude. And, and the Garden State is like Newark, New Jersey. You feel what I'm saying to you? Like worse than Brooklyn. You feel what I'm saying to you? So automatically... Uh, survival kicks in, right? Because you have to figure it out. So <clears throat> I would say my father had a vision to put a church in the hood. And his idea was it would be the first uh, multilingual church that would speak multiple languages, English, French, and Creole. He puts this church in the worst section of the ghetto. And within that now, I have to find a way to you know, get people not to steal the cars in the neighborhood, you know, and if they steal the cars, I got to get the cars back. You feel me? Um, and my dad literally would look at me with no fear in a block where people are getting shot and killed. And he would look at me in the eyes and he, you know, he's preaching. You literally can hear my dad. And he's like, he's inside of the church and he's like, and the Lord, he's coming. The Lord is coming. And while you hear that outside, you hear, skirt, skirt. And he looks at me. That means to go get the car back. Somebody just stole a car. You feel what I'm saying to you? So in all of this, you're trying to find different things that kids could relate to. So I found that kids were fascinated by the fact that I could play different instruments. So, and then I was a choir director. So I figured if I could do music for the neighborhood, then I wouldn't have to be on the block doing this. And that was really like my introduction. Like I literally would go to the block and be like, yo, if you want to beat, you know what I'm saying to you? Like come to the Booger Basement and, you know, you make your little cards and you pass them out. And one thing I had in East Orange, my cousin to tell you, we never locked our basement door. Like we was living in the back. There's a crack house in the back. And then there's a, we had a Kentucky Fried Chicken and then we're in the middle of the hood. And they know my rules. Never, ever have I locked my basement. So in a neighborhood where, you know, crack fiends could come in and out, I've never, ever locked the door. I mean, they all know like Johnny Cash, we had a shotgun, but they never necessarily would come because I always felt like you have to get the neighborhood to trust you. And the only way that they're going to trust you is to open your arms to them. And um, and I made it to Curtis Blow because um, in Newark, New Jersey, we had a school program. And in the school program, every summer they was giving internships. And I scored an internship at CBS Records. And internship, you know, you go every summer, you putting out mail. And I was the guy that literally I would talk you to death. You feel me? And tell you I'm the best guy in the world, like Muhammad Ali. So I'm like, yo, yo, Curtis, I'm dope, man. And he's like, yo, bust something. And I was like, yo, I'm so ill, Curtis. I can rhyme in five languages. This is what I told Curtis Blow. And he was like, what? And then he was like, go. And I was like, mira, amiga, buenos dias, señorita. Como esta usted y su familia? Estoy yendo bien en el micrófono. Espero que todos estén bien como yo. Curtis Blow, man, you still ain't convinced. You might get convinced when I flip it in French. Quand je marche dans la vallée de la mort, je ne crains aucun mal. He's like, okay, okay, this guy is different. <laughs> uh, he brought me in the studio at 15 years old. And, uh, and I would have brought you to the studio. You too. <laughs> <laughs> that was That's a start, crazy. Man. <laughs> um, was it good? The first song you wrote? Not at all. What was the first song you wrote? Um, it you was know? a good. 
Do you know what it was? Um, I mean, f- knowing knowing that you just did that, you probably know what the first song you wrote was. Yeah, well, the first song that I wrote was in the village, and I what was that? Called? I c- I could not remember it, but my aunt does, and Whoa. yeah, she's she always asks me who was Kole Bowo, and I'm like. I don't have no idea who's calling boy. She's like, because when you was four years old, you came up to me and you was like, listen to this song. And, and you just kept saying, and I was like, I don't know who is, auntie. So apparently that was my first song. Huh. You know what I'm saying to you? You studied, you studied jazz. You studied all kinds of music. I mean, this is not, you know, uh, it's really... It's especially for when we were younger, like that's that's a pretty elevated form of music for what our entire generation was listening to. I mean, none of us were listening to it unless someone was saying like you you should get into Miles Davis, you should get into Coltrane, you should get into that. Who's introducing you to that kind of music? Was your dad into jazz? Was it his teacher? Like who who opens that door for you? It was a high school teacher. Um, so, like, in high school, I was in the, the auditorium, and I used to always wear, like, my goose down and my scully because I just wanted to be the best battle rapper in the school, and that's what was, made me cool. Were you? Um, yeah, I was tough. Yeah, for sure. So, 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 I'm on this side, and I'm playing these chords on piano. You feel me? And she walks in there, and she's like what are you doing? And I was like, oh, I'm just playing these chords. And she was like, do you know what you're playing? And I was like, no. She was like, you don't know what you're playing? And I was like, I don't know what I'm playing. And she was like, what do you see when you play these chords? And now keep in mind, I don't know nothing about theory yet or nothing. She was like, what do you see? I say, I see numbers. And then so... She's like, what do you mean you see numbers? Then I started quoting numbers. I was like, for example, I don't even have to hit this chord, but in my head, I could see like one, three, five, seven. And she was like, do one, three, five, seven. So I started doing all of these strange things on piano. And she was like, tomorrow, you're starting jazz. And I was like, I ain't going to jazz. That's for old people. I'm a battle rapper. And she was like, <laughs> and I was like, oh man, this teacher's gonna ruin my life. And and then so she puts me in jazz, and this is what's ill. She was like, but you're not going to play piano. She was like, I know you play a lot of different instruments, so you're gonna play start off with bass. And Smart I was like, move. I was like, yeah. I was like, okay, and I was happy because I was like, oh, bass is way easier than piano, so tomorrow. I bring my electric bass. And she was like, no, you're going to start with upright. And dude, I mean, it's so funny because you can look online and see me at 17 years old in an Eric B. and Rakim video playing upright bass. And so she starts me with upright. The reason why she started me with upright, she the bass notes are the easiest to follow in sheet music, as you know. So um, and that literally opened my head up to Miles Davis' Bitches Brew, our Blakey, Thelonious Monk. Um, and then it was sort of like I was just fascinated with how complicated and cool the music sounded and how fast you can move your mind and how quick you can move, you dig? So that's what got me into jazz. You know, what would you consider your first break? You know, I mean, at this point, you're already, you know, you've 
gone through internships, you've met people, people undoubtedly must start knowing who you are in the neighborhood if you're already doing what you're doing. So what what's the thing that kind of is, is like, oh yeah, maybe this is actually a living and not, you know, not just somebody who's just trying to make music in a basement? Well, I, I, I was barely 18 and my man in the hood said, look, um, Atlantic Records, which was called Big Beat Records, they have, they need a vocalist for a song that a DJ has. And we we told them that there's a Haitian kid who's, you know, who's an alien. He'd be perfect. So I was like, okay. So I go in the studio in New York City. And I remember it clear because Nelson Mandela had just got out of prison. So I was so inspired to write a song against this house song. So that it was a house beat and I jumped in the booth, put on my headphones and I was like, out of the jungle, here we go. Way, 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 here we go. And I killed it. And I, I think he gave me $400. And... You have to understand, man. You from the hood, four hundred dollars. Yeah, this huge. is gonna get me like some Pumas, like a sweatsuit, a fake change from Canal Street in New York. Like this is me. So I leave. Now when I leave, uh, this song right starts to blow up. It's gonna freak everybody out after I say this, and everyone goes Google this shit. So I leave, and apparently. Years later, my man say, so this is like right before I started the Fuji's, right? So three years prior, my man, after this, my man said, yo, did you have a twin in like 89, 90? And I was like, no, I ain't had no twin. He's like, yo, man, there's a kid who sounds just like you, but he from Africa. And I'm like, what? And he's like, yo, you have to listen to this record. And he sends me the record. And the record is, out of the jungle, here we go. Way -o, way -o. So, apparently, when I left the studio that day, the, the producers and the DJs that was around, they was like, yo, what was his name? And dudes was like, yo, uh, we don't know, man. Uh, but he sound African. Hmm. All right, then. So, let's just call him Africali, right? So... Literally, if you listening right now, you can literally like go online and listen to why Clef's twin, right? So the record is called Out of the Jungle featuring Africali. And then so um, and then it was a house record. Incredible. So for me though, what that did was it let me knew that I can have an in inside of like I could be doing bigger things than just like I was like yo if this thing if I made $400 from this and this thing is blowing up on the underground to the point where these guys couldn't find me and made a fake name for me um, <laughs> maybe I can do something with my life you know yeah um that worked um so then the Fugees hey the Fugees I mean come on It really is obviously a game changer, not just for you, but for everybody. Yeah. Um, just tell the story of how the Fuji started. And then, you know, I know, you know, 
we got a lot to get to. So I don't know how you condensed one of the best projects in my lifetime, but knock yourself out. Um, I think the best way to just condense it is just to say um, the first album, which was called Blunted on Reality, from the Fugees, failed uh, miserably. Um, so the score was actually the second album. Right. So the first album was called Blunted on Reality. Um, the Fugees was signed. We were signed to a production, um, production music label called Le Jam. And Le Jam owners were um, Cool in the Gang. It was like oh, wow. Khalees, Bayon, Cool in the Gang. And the album was called Blunted on Reality. So... Wait, how did you first go back to like you meet Lauren? Oh yeah, so, like like who are these people that you're like? Oh yeah, let's start this so, project. So, so I'm in, I'm in my daddy's church. I get a call from Prize, and Prize always has a hustle. Like we call Prize Dirty Cash in the hood, and Prize is like, Yo, man, I'm in the studio, man, with uh these two girls, right? And I was thinking, I'm doing this record, but it sound like I need some kind of a reggae hook. Do you think you could? I said, man, look, man, I'm going to try to sneak out the church. Tell me where y'all at. So I get to this studio, and it's my other man in the hood that be doing these demos. So I see two girls. One of them is Lauren Hill, and, and the other is Marcy. And one of them sounded like Nina Simone. And the other one sounded like Mariah Carey, like 15, 16 years old. Do you understand what I'm saying to you? So everybody's in the hood. And I was like, so you know, it's like I'm spunky. I'm from my daddy's church. So I just wanted to show off to the girls. So I was like, yo. And then, you know, I could speak proper English like this, but I figured it'd be cool. I think the girls would think it was sexy because if I talked in an accent, so I never spoke proper when I walked in there. I was like, yeah, no problem. <laughs> yeah, just let the tip roll. Roll the tip, roll the tip. And they was like, oh my God, do you hear his accent? And then, so they rolled the tip. <laughs> and, and then I, I, I did my thing. And then the, the birth of the Fugees was the producer that was in there, Khalees Bayon, who did like Jungle Boogie for Cool in the Gang, all of the real hard Cool in the Gang stuff he did. So he was one of the mentors. And when he played the tape back, it ain't like the music was good yet, right? But he heard something that none of us can hear. He heard fusion. And he was like, yo, when you put this voice with this voice, something's going on. And he was like, yo, y'all should be a group. So he convinced us to become a group, sign to La Jam, and do the first project with him. And one of the girls ended up leaving, Marcy, because her mother was like, look, this music thing is not working out. Um, so you need to go to college and you have to, to leave the group. So, I mean, we all cried because we all loved each other. You know what I'm saying? Like Marcy, do you keep like in touch everybody. with her at all? I seen, I seen Marcy like three years ago. Uh -huh. Like she was doing like, she made it, in her university, okay, and then she did some stuff off Broadway. You know what Huge. I mean. Yeah. So, so she was really, um, but you know, her parents made her leave. She didn't want to leave. So then we were stuck with the three of us, and and uh, and Khalees Bayon produced the first album, which was called Blunted on Reality, and um, and 
the interesting part about when he was doing that album, I felt like, you know, like the kid in the science class that knows the answer to the equations, but like you can't really say much because it's a professor and you don't want to go up there and like, you know, be like, yo, but I think the math for calculus should be this. So I told Khalees to take me as a mentor and he took me as a mentor and I was like, I'm going to learn as much as I can from this guy from Cool and the Gang. Because, I mean, they banging out the hits, Joanna and all of that. The thing about what he was producing and when I went back to my neighborhood, what we were listening to was two different things. Like, my hood wasn't listening to no Joanna. Like, they was listening to Coogee rap, you know what I'm saying to you? So um, so the first album did not do well, and um, and we thought it was over. Sony literally was about to drop us, man. Did you want to give up? Or were you like, nah, this, whatever, you guys just don't understand. I'm doing another album. I mean, No, we couldn't. I mean, where I, where I come from, I couldn't give up. I'm from the village. Right. So for me, I just looked at everything as an opportunity. Even a failure. I said, well, people are paying attention. Um, so let's, you know, we're going to give it a shot. And the reason why the second album is called The Score is because I was like, we about to settle the score. They don't want to pay attention. We're going to make them pay attention. And I was like, okay, well, you know, forget that production company. You know, I have a few ideas. So at the time, I was listening to a lot of Pink Floyd, The Wall. I was engineering a lot. So I wanted to create something with a lot of space in it. I was listening to Miles Davis' Bitches Brew. Um, The only problem was we couldn't afford it, right? So how the hell am I going to create an album that you love, right? I can't get into a studio with a Neve board. I can't get into nothing. So... We bought a bunch of, um, like, garage sale equipment because we, like, they call us the thug nerds. So any, like, let me have a tech talk real quick for my, 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 my thug, thug nerds. So we bought a 456 Ampex reel with 24 channel. And as you know, the 24th channel is for the Sempty. And literally, sort of like Queen, what we did was that's how I recorded the Fuji. So literally, we would be bouncing like 15 tracks, you know, like not too far to the 24th track so we don't get the um, sympathy leakage. And literally, um, so send that back to track one. So then it'd be like 15 tracks on track one, and then we would go with track two um, because, you know, we couldn't really afford um, things. The second thing, when you listen to Killing Me Softly, it was like one time, two time. If any musician goes now and try to play their instrument which is tuned to standard 4040 440 sorry and you try to play with killing me softly you have to literally detune your instrument and you'd be like what the hell like why do i have to detune my instrument well let me tell you why the reason why is i couldn't afford uh uh, a fender roads right so what i did was i could afford a s900 akai so what I did was I midi the Akai to the uh, VFX keyboard, right? And I used the S900 oscillator that would be the tone, right? Triggered it back on the VFX, and then I cut the tone. And so once I cut the tone back on the VFX, when I hit it, it sounded like a Fender Rhodes, but it wasn't a Fender Rhodes. All I did was put a little EQ on it. And then so it's detuned because it's really a sine wave that when I 
if I paid more attention, I would have put it at 440, but I think it was like at 438. And um, so I apologize if you can't, if you have to detune your instruments, you know what I mean? That's screwed with people who did karaoke everywhere, I'm sure, because like those machines like naturally tune to certain things, and there are probably people who are just constantly sharp singing, trying to sing to that. It's fantastic. Great prank. Hey guys, so as, as you know, we are giant audiophiles here because, well, we make music for a living. So, one thing I've learned in the last year is you need to have speakers at home that sound like speakers you have in the studio. But obviously the speakers you have in a studio are probably going to cost you an arm and a leg. So you need to get speakers at home that are as transparent and are as clear as what you record your music on. Because when you're going to play music for your friends, they need to sound like you want them to be heard. So my friends at Sonos just sent me some speakers, and they're incredible. You don't realize how easy it is to set up. Basically, you take it out of the box, you turn on your phone, you, you download the app, you go on the app, and you can control the whole thing there. Spotify, Apple, whatever you want to you know stream. It, it's so easy to use. Um, I recommend you going and grabbing, you know, grab at least one. You can grab as many as you want after that, and it's just easy to add them to your system. So that's at Sonos.com. Again, that's Sonos.com. Thank you so much for supporting us. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Does your did your dad, did your brother, did your family recognize at that point, how successful you had become? I mean, what what point does your family say, oh, maybe this isn't... I mean, what what was their process? What were the people around you? I mean, obviously, there were a bunch of people rooting for you, but there's there's one thing when everyone's rooting for you, and I'm sure, you know, there are a lot of aspiring people in this room where they've got a community, you know, rooting for them to be successful, but it's it's a journey. And at what point did they realize, I, I kind of think Clef made it. Yeah, I, I think my dad, who um, he passed away, I mean, God bless him, he was not into what I was doing. Like, that wasn't his thing. His idea in bringing us to America is we would be a preacher. Um, he wanted me to be a minister, and he had a plan laid out for me and my brother. So literally, we was going to become like lawyers and engineers, and we would be following after his footsteps doing the ministry. So um, when it was time to go to Christian college, 
I like ran away from home and went to Long Island. My brother ended up, he was the good kid. He ended up going to law school and, and, and finishing. Um, but I would say like between my brother and law school and me with the Fuji's trying to figure things out um, and my father having his church, um, we scuffled a lot. So there was a period he wasn't talking to me. And he worked for a company called Don Warnock. He would um, he would do the mechanic work and also drive the cars like cross country. And one day he was at Don Warnock doing some mechanic work. Right, it's my daddy, and I'm a Fuji. My daddy's just chilling, and one of the guys is like, "Pastor, you look like this big superstar. Your forehead, you have the same forehead." <laughs> it's like. My dad, my dad is mad confused. He's like, who? And he's like, Clef John. And then my dad's like, that's my son. And he's like, no. If that's your son, you don't work here because he's a millionaire, right? So, so my dad, I never forget the call. So later, man, he called me on the phone. Like, basically, what do you do for a living? You know what I mean? So I was like, dad, remember I told you I didn't want to be a preacher, but... I'm going to use words the same way, but it's just going to be different. So I'm with a little group, you know, it's called the Fugees. And I said, I'm following your footsteps, but just different. And and he was like, okay, come to the house. And when I came to the house, I was going back on tour and he gave me a Billy Graham biography. And he was like, yo, take this Billy Graham book with you. So I took the Billy Graham book with me. And then, uh, and then I think like, Four weeks later, I made, like, my first, like, $1 million, like, like a check. It was, like, $1 million. And the first thing I did was I went to my mama, and I was like, you know, I'm about to buy your house for $1 million. You know what I mean? And I bought my mama and my daddy a crib for with my first million. And I think um, afterwards, my dad still ain't come to the shows. You know what I'm saying to you? Um and the only show my father ever went to was probably one of my most iconic shows till today because I tricked him. So as we talk about the jazz roots, so I never wanted to be popular, just to be honest with you. I always wanted to be the best jazz musician in the world. So, um, but pop culture changed that. So I was like, I wanted to play Carnegie Hall because I was like, you do not get respect until you play Carnegie Hall in my world. So what I did was I wanted to create my version of Porky and Bess, like Gershwin. So I called up, at the time, all of my friends. So I had a wish list. I called Eric Clapton. Um, I called up Charlotte Church. I called Stevie Wonder, Whitney Houston, Beyonce, everybody. Yeah, when I call my friends too, I'm like, yo. You feel me? Like you hit your friends up. And B, I'm like, come over. Come over, right? I'm about to do a show. B, Sting, everybody. And it, it's the whole uh, village. Exactly. <laughs> and and it changed my life. It was uh, called Wyclef and Friends at Carnegie Hall. I, I and if you haven't seen this, I took the entire sheet music from beginning to end. And my father showed up, and he showed up because he thought I was doing a gospel concert. You know what I'm saying? But once I knew I had him there, I mean, I got to tell you, Stevie, everyone was there. But I stopped the night and was like, Yo, I'm so happy. Because I saw my dad there. And to me, that was like one of the best things in the world, you know. 
And then he comes backstage. And my dad reminds me a little bit of Mr. Miyagi, <laughs> like wax on, wax off. Because you always like, dude, just talk straight, man. Don't give me like a riddle or a fiddle, dog. You know, and he goes, do you know when you make it? I'm like, ah, oh, here we go again. He said, you know when you made it when the arena shows up and they don't see the color, they see the man. Wow. You know, so very deep. Um, I don't think they like what my dad said. They're leaving. <laughs> oh, y'all good? All right. No, I'm just saying. No, I'm just saying. <laughs> um, I want to talk about some of the writing and producing you've done outside of, you know, well... Before we get into that, let's go to the solo stuff. After the Fugees, why do you guys start doing solo music? And then obviously both of you became really successful, both of you being you and Lauren as, as solo artists. You know, why did you guys decide to end after the score? And I mean, you guys still had a working relationship. Yeah. So, and it was on my next project. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So why not continue with the Fugees? Because, I mean, we was 20 million strong, right? And so crazy. And, but remember, the, the gold for me was, um, it was not fame. Because when you like 20 million strong, um, and this is what I tell every artist, this is, this is going to be like the make it or break it moment. Like, you have to defy them. And said, no, 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 my next project is going to be the most artistic project that's going to come out of my mind. Because we didn't do the score chasing numbers. We did the scores coming up with a creative. So if I have a creative idea, Lauren, have, I'm going to support it. So the label thought I was crazy, man. They thought I was on acid, man. Because when I came and I delivered the carnival, bro, the carnival is in five languages. And... It had from disco to what people consider Afrobeats today to folk music to to Latin music to everything. Um, and then they, they thought I was out of, out of my mind. And the carnival literally that I wanted to do an album where now I could paint the picture of my brain. Um, and it's called the carnival because I was celebrating uh, culture around the entire world. So it was... I wanted to do a project that could show people how much alike we are versus, you know, because when you have Celia Cruz on Guantanamera and then you have Bob Dylan appear in your video and gone to November, right? It just shows how close we really are. Um, so that that's why um, I ended up doing that project. Yeah, one of the things that I try to talk a lot on the, the podcast and just doing legislation stuff is that it's our generation's job to tear down the walls between genres. And since there are no aisles in stores anymore, the idea of genres is specific to radio and to some playlists. But for the most part, we don't listen anymore to genres. And it's it's sort of our responsibility as creators, I think, to show how similar all this music is and that how human it is. And the more you use influences from different people, the more it sounds like 2020. So I like that. Anyway, okay. So uh, let's go to uh, Whitney Houston. I mean, come on. That's pretty crazy. You write with Whitney Houston. Massive hit. My love is your love. Um, kind of the maybe the end of her like really major rain 
what was it like working with her at that point? Well, I mean, Whitney's incredible. She's from Jersey. I'm from Jersey. We both had a, a spiritual like relationship, like knowing what it's like to be raised in the church. And uh, Clive Davis, who's one of my mentors, he approached me and was like, yo, you know, I need a song for Whitney. And we're closing the album. And I was like, how long I got? You know, barely two hours. That's how Clive gives you. You know, and I go and I sit on the piano. And to your point, I was like, well, I'm just going to write the most honest song for Whitney right now. Because I didn't feel like some of the, the material that was coming, I was like, and then I was looking at some of the press and was like, so then I sat on the piano and I was like, you know, if tomorrow's judgment day and I'm standing on the front line and the Lord, you know, my love is your love. And I did the demo and I send it to Clive. He sent it to Whitney. And, you know, you're nervous, right? Because this is Whitney and I'm waiting for the, you know, I, I was in the hood. Like, I believe the children or the future. So, and she hit me back. And she was like, I love this song. And I got I went in the studio with Whitney and I even recorded Bobby Brown. Uh, okay, so here's a, uh, something you might know about, not know about the Whitney record. So what was incredible about the Whitney session, I was in there with Whitney, Whitney's daughter, with Bobby, right? All three of them with me, right? And my cousin. Now... I started, Whitney starts to record this and and I'm like, okay, come on, Bobby. You're going to jump on backgrounds. And I mean, that's still Bobby Brown, right? So at the end of the day, I record Bobby Brown on background, tucked his vocals real low. I didn't tell Clive any of this, right? And meanwhile, I saw the relationship with Whitney and her daughter. And then I gave Whitney daughter the microphone and I'm rolling the tape and I was like, do you want to say anything to your mommy? And the mic's in her hand and she don't know she, I'm being she's being recorded. And then she's like, sing mommy. So when you listen to My Love's Your Love again now, you, you see I gave you this scientific side of it. So when you hear the record, now you pay attention, you're going to hear Bobby in background and then you're going to hear Whitney's daughter out of nowhere says sing mommy. So for me, um, what the best thing I loved about that session is my Whitney Houston last experience with her was with the entire family. So no one could take that from me. Um, the Whitney that I know and the Whitney that I feel and the Whitney that I loved and spent time with, you know. It's crazy. Yeah, I mean, so much of recording is, even if it's going to be digital, it's going to be edited now. I mean, obviously that's maybe not digital at the time, but the idea of creating a moment and and capturing that and and being confident in having some of those things that may not make sense is what makes it unique. Maria Maria, which recently has been sampled and is now like, so you get two number one songs off of the first number one song. Man, that's crazy. Um, because Supernatural, you know, it's like, it's one thing when you have, you've, you know, you had songs on huge, huge, huge albums. Supernatural's got to be as big as any other album that you've been on. I mean, yeah. it's just stupid big. Do you feel at this point that you can do no wrong? Is there a part of you that starts to have, do you have any question whether you're going to, you know, 
when do you realize what kind of run you're having? Do you think of it as a run? I mean, what is it like at that point? Because you've now had, you know, five years or something like that of just kind of smashes. Um, well, I think the the real run that I look for, you know, my mentor is Quincy Jones. First time I got a chance to go to Matro's Jazz Festival was with Q. And, you know, we 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 there and you know, I come out and I perform and um and I have conversations with Q. So I'm forty nine, like so it's like Q ain't do like thriller to use like fifty three, fifty four. So the way that I look at it is like the reason why Q is my gold is because from scoring films, like the first movie I scored was Life with uh, Eddie Murphy and Martin Lawrence, you know? So I'm watching the Oscars, you know what I mean? And then now I have another gold, you feel me? So I'm just like, uh, now it's almost like you have to have someone that you look up to. So... I've never, I never count numbers and I never look at it like, oh, you did this or you did that. I'm always on like, you know, what is the next thing? Um, what is the next focus and what's the next passion? So I think for me, um, that's how I look at it. But I'll tell you real talk, when I did Killing Me Softly and I made somebody else like over like $7 million, that was my first time being <laughs> introduced. Like you could make somebody else's song hot and you know what I'm saying? I mean, it was good for us because we toured, made a lot of money. But it's like, I was like, man, I'd rather be on the side of the guy who's somewhere just chilling in his crib. And then, you know what I'm saying? Every time I go one time, he goes to the bank and he's like, ching, ching. You know what I'm saying? To you? <laughs> so I one wanted time, to be on. Seven million times. Yeah. So yeah. I, I wanted to be <laughs> on that side. So me and DJ Khaled, we friends, but we're like real friends, like. Almost like first time I met Khaled, I was like 19. So we like have a heavy connection. So when he hit me up and was like, yo, I need to to do Maria Maria. I have an idea for me and Rihanna. And then he was like, yo, but Carlos Santana, you know, could you get to him? Because, you know, Santana's like, that's another one of my godfathers. And Santana don't clear nothing. That's like Prince, you know what I mean? But... You know, being like I own like 75% of that record, um, it still was important to get the blessing of the Godfather. So when we called Santana and I put Santana with Khaled, um, it was just like beautiful, man, I'd say. So nuts. I, I Going back to um, Killing Me Softly and that era, I did ask on my Instagram, I said, does anybody have any questions to ask you? And my friend Ryan Tedder, singer from One Republic, classic writer, producer, said, does Wyclef like Sister Act 2 as much as we do? <laughs> That's a, a good question. Well, <laughs> tell, uh, tell him not only do I like Sister Act, you have to understand while Lauren was doing Sister Act, we was on the phone like every day. So <laughs> she was like literally like, yo, I'm about to do this thing you know, with, with Whoopi. So what was crazy about Sister Act was the the Fuji's is rolling, right? And we rehearse and we doing our thing. And now I go to New York and I'm doing an off-Broadway play. She goes to California. She's doing Sister Act. So it was ill because if you just look at it, like, we never stop. So there's constant things going on. So for me, um, she's like, yo, I'm doing something with Whoopi. 
you know what I'm saying? And it's going to be good. And then so every day I would get reports on Sister Act before it even came out. So <laughs> um, okay, so we only have like eight minutes left, so I'm going to rush through. You know, you got a bunch of more hits, more hits, more hits, some other songs. That one's a hit. Okay, and then <coughs> you... Um, so tell me about why Clef goes back to school, which is right now. Yeah. Explain what that is in like a minute. Okay, so while Clef goes back to school... Next time we hang out, by the way, you got all day. Nah, I got you, baby. Okay. While Clef goes back to school, 2019, how do I Clef put music out? Um, everything is curated through different playlists. So um, my playlist has always been about discovery. So what I did in touring the carnival, I would start with volume one, and I would travel the country and meet different college kids and university kids that I feel that are the next that are not necessarily on the playlist, on your YouTube, on your creation list. And so when you pick up Wyclef Goes Back to School, 80% of the kids on the projects are different kids from universities throughout America. So for me, I might hear a girl and say, wow, she might be the next Erica Badu. She's 21 and you'll discover her and why Clef goes back to school. I might be like, wow, she's the next Adele. So it's just a, cur a curation playlist, but based on the idea of producers and songwriters producing all of these acts. All right, politician. Tell me real quick about you as a politician, because I think, <laughs> you know, being somebody who's been working a lot in legislation stuff for songwriters in the last year, I'm starting to understand a little bit about politics. So go for it. Well, I mean, Peter Tosh said it's called politics. You feel me? So we never, or polish shit. We never, <laughs> we never just, we just step up. Like you, you step up. Um, this is not, we don't, this is like an obligation. Like, so we have a moral obligation to step up for public service. So at the end of the day, um, that's really like the bottom line to it. I felt like the government in my country was absent at the time when we needed them to be present. And to your point with legislation, I've been lobbying for legislation for my country since I've been 21 years old. I've helped um, negotiate with gangs and all kind of things. So when I decided that I was going to run, I just felt at the time um, for a country to get out of debt, realistically, you can't be under the IMF or the World Bank. You know, you can't tell people like, here's microloan. So what I wanted to do was create social entrepreneurship, you know, agribanks and give people a chance. And we're definitely going to pick up, but once again, like on Dave Chappelle, when I said, if I was president, I get elected on Friday, assassinated on Saturday. We we don't, it's not like we want these government positions. But at the end of the day, we as humans and as people, we have a moral obligation. If we feel like the governments that are responsible for us are not doing the right things, we always have to step up to the forefront. <laughs> For this next segment, I'm going to list five things. You're just going to tell me what comes off the top of your head first. You can do it in whatever language you want. <laughs> Start with your dad. Missionary. Let's go with your wife. Tough. <laughs> Let's go with Lauren Hill. Uh, incredible. Clive Davis. 
teacher. I've never done this before, but why clef? Weird. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, thank you for doing this. Thank you for having me. We've been pretty fortunate. We get to talk to a lot of people, but... You know, I know that for me, I aspire to do what I'm passionate about. And sometimes those things are not what, what's in line with the stereotype for my profession. And so to see people who lead the way in owning their path. And, you know, I know we all get FOMO on occasion. We all have our own issues dealing with, um, in a way, the weirder the path you take the more you, you have to have conviction and remind yourself that, that passion is why you're doing it. And along with that comes financial success and credibility. And, you know, you, you are continuing to be a philosopher. And like we were saying in the, the greenish room. The greenish room. You know, it's like that. The 420 room. Yeah. But the idea is, you know, we're we're all just trying to, you know, the the more successful you become, the more you have some responsibility in in sort of continuing to be yourself so the next generation can learn from you how to how to run a career and how to be a musician, how to be a human and how to do that well. So I'm proud of you. And proud I appreci- of you too, fam. I, I, I appreciate you. So thank you. Yeah, man. Shout out to you, the beard god. Exactly. Thank you so much. Always, baby. We're connected, baby. We've got two more minutes. So if you guys have questions, yeah, freestyle. Oh, you ready? Here you go. So let's play a game. 21. Right? So I'm going to show you how you do double metaphors in one word. You ready? Do it. Now I'm the one. I know what you're thinking, me too. But in this game of numbers, they could only be a few. I'm the Trinity. Guess the riddle, kid. One man on two sticks. What's that? The crucifix. At least that's what they taught me in Sunday school. Forgive my foes. Fives. Pointed at Pinocchio's nose. Skip the six. Go to seven. That's the number of completion. Adam ate the apple, so they cast him from the Garden of Eden. Jealousy got him waving his nine. Cain kills Abel. He a tin man. His heart pumps oil. Two ones ain't enough to make it rain. Microphone check. One, two, that's 12. Hip-hop lives in my vein. I'm from the era dudes scrap with their hands. Play Friday the 13th, get Cobra Clutch or Body Slams. But my little cousins, they gang-related. They don't use their hands no more. It's M14s, M15s, guns and roses pointed at your sweet 16. And I was born... On October 17, that's the day they killed my leader, Jean-Jacques Dessalines. And my mama told me, there's monsters under my bed. They 18s. 
So think Malcolm X, the 19th hour by any means. 2020 vision, they say the good die young. <laughs> I had to trick death. That's how I made it past 21. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this episode of And The Writer Is. If you want to hear music from this songwriter I just interviewed, be sure to check out our Spotify playlist or visit our website at andthewriteris.com. If you like what we're doing, please subscribe to us. You can also like us on Facebook and Twitter. And the Writer Is is produced by Joe London, edited by Miles Bergsma, and published by Big Deal Music. A special thanks to David Silverstein from Mega House Music and Michael White. Until next time, this is Ross Golan. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.